This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I'd like to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. Today, I'm pleased to welcome as my guests two friends and colleagues. The first is Dr. Diane Jetty who is professor at the MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston, Massachusetts, and Dr. Stephen Hunter, who is Director of Internal Process Control for Rehabilitation Services at the Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City, Utah. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Alan. Today we're going to talk about a clinical practice guideline for physical therapist management of total knee arthroplasty that was just published in PTJ. I'll give a little summary and then we'll we'll talk about the guideline document. The total knee replacement clinical practice guideline that has just been released is based on a systematic review of 192 published studies out of 1,258 articles that the committee reviewed with regard to physical therapist management of adult patients undergoing total knee replacement to provide practice recommendations as well as to highlight areas that require future research to improve the management and care of patients undergoing total knee replacement. The methods used by the committee to create this clinical practice guideline were designed to minimize bias and to enhance transparency in the selection and the appraisal and the analysis of the available evidence. Let me start by saying I really enjoyed the document. I think you very clearly outlined both the process and and the, the results of your work. Let me start by asking about that process I thought it was quite systematic and quite comprehensive. Could you give our listeners a brief overview of how the committee approached their work? First of all, this was a partnership with the American Physical Therapy Association, uh, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. So uh, I think this is the first project where APTA worked with AAOS to to do a a systematic and in-depth literature view on a specific topic. So there was a team from AAOS that met with our group. Uh, the group was uh, a very broad group. It, it consisted, obviously, of, of physical therapists, uh, an orthopedic surgeon, a nurse, a consumer, uh, and, and really we got a lot of, of, of input uh, from the, this, this varied and broad group. The, the group met almost for three years. Uh, I'm not sure that was originally intended to go that long, but it did, and and I'm actually glad to, that it did. Um, so we we went through the process of developing these PICO questions, you know, related to population intervention, um, comparison, outcome, and time. Uh, the PICO questions then guided uh, Alan. They guided our our, our focus in, in in different areas, and then we did the the literature review in those in those areas. Uh, 
draft, uh, we had some invited comments from experts uh, that APTA selected and that the, the group selected. And I think we had close to 400 comments that we reviewed. Uh, and then it went to an open review that anyone could comment. We had another two or 300 comments, and, and we reviewed every single comment and made several changes to the, the manuscript based on that. That's pretty much the process. Diane, anything to add to that? I, I would just add that AAOS used its expertise. They've, they've done this process before, both I think within inside their own organization as well as with others, and they have an incredible staff that can do very systematic literature searches and review articles, and you'll see that one of the appendices is like 600 pages long, and it includes all the tables showing all the data from the included articles as well as the quality uh, review process for those articles. So the AAOS was responsible for that, and they have a very professional and systematic way of doing that. I don't think that any group of volunteers, APTA volunteers or volunteers from any of our academies, could have done that kind of process. It is very nicely outlined in your uh, article, and so I would uh, encourage our listeners to take a look at both the process, the committee, and, and, the, and the findings in the article. Having gone through this process, as the two of you reflect on it, what do you see as its both greatest strengths as well as the limitations? Diane, I think you already touched on one of the strengths. I'm particularly interested in where you see there are limitations in the process for that might help guide future work. Well, I, I think one of the issues that we run up against is not, only, not just the limitation of our research process, but the limitations of the literature that affect our ability to make recommendations with any kind of confidence. There's incredible amount of heterogeneity in studies, um, meaning we only have maybe one or two studies that compare the same intervention uh, or to the same control on the same outcomes. So it's very difficult. You'll notice that there's maybe two or three meta-analyses, but we didn't have enough data to do meta-analyses. So that, in fact, means that we had to make, as a group, we had to make some qualitative assessment, including constructs that sometimes are difficult to weigh. Uh, for example, the magnitude of a finding weighing risks against benefits, looking at statistical significance, and, and that doesn't even consider whether a finding was important, clinically important, versus statistically significant. So I think those are some of the, I don't know if they're limitations, but they're um, struggles that any group would have with this type of literature that we seem to have in our profession. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, we'll come back to you, Stephen, but I want to pick up on what Diane's talking about because it did strike me in reviewing the specific recommendations. There were several for which you concluded the evidence was insufficient for a particular intervention. For example, um, you mentioned preoperative education, post-op 
physical activity, range of motion exercises, and physical therapy discharge planning. Yet the committee made recommendations to support their use for patients undergoing total knee replacement, primarily based on consensus and current practice. Why not conclude that no evidence-based recommendation could be made instead of basing a recommendation on consensus? I think uh, Diane was really leading into that when she talked about some of the limitations with the uh, with the studies that we that we had. Um, I, you know, I mean, I, I think that this highlights maybe the strength of the process where we where we had this significant review of the literature, but also had some of the country's best experts in this area that that could take their experience, take the literature, and then temper those responses with a with a uh, strength of, of recommendation. So, I mean, can, we can give you a couple of examples. Um, you know, one you mentioned, I mean, range of motion exercises. So, the literature isolating range of motion exercises only is, is there's just not that much. And, and, you know, this is probably considered the standard practice, so I'm not sure how many people would say, well, let's study if range of motion is going to help the knee. Um, and so, so we had to look at studies where range of motion was part of the treatment and then see if we could tease some of that out to say, well, we think we should do range of motion exercises uh, postoperatively with, with, with patients. So the, the, the literature was, strength was low, but we made a higher recommendation. On the opposite, another example is where, you know, placing the knee in flexion postoperatively to reduce blood loss. In, and there were some high-quality <laughs> studies, but we made a low strength of recommendation um, because these studies were done in, in situations where the length of stay was six to seven days. Um, some of the studies were done in, in countries where the, uh, the procedure of the total knee replacement is a little different. Uh, and, and so even though there was strong evidence, we made a, a lower recommendation. They also didn't monitor extension range of motion except for in one study. And that would be, I think, a concern by placing the knee into flexion immediately postoperatively. So the strength was high, our recommendation was lower. So I think we had to combine the, the, the literature with the expert opinion on the uh, panel. I, I think the other, another example that you mentioned was uh, post-op physical activity. And, you know, we know that physical activity is good and that inactivity is bad for the overall health of the general population. And there are some studies that kind of didn't make the cut into our um, clinical practice guideline, but that showed that with people with total knee replacement, many are not as active as they should be. So I think it allows us to have some confidence in our consensus and recommendation, for example, for physical activity, using some of the literature that may not have made it into our um, into our CPG. That makes sense. I understand the, the challenge that you faced. It does really point out some real gaps in our scientific literature in this very important area. 
And I was glad to see that the committee did identify uh, areas where much more research is needed. Uh, let, let me let me ask about one other that really kind of jumped out at me. I'm interested to see your view on this one. The committee recommended that supervised physical therapist management should be provided for patients who have undergone this surgery. But you also, uh, and you concluded that there was a preponderance of benefit. You gave it three stars, a high level of certainty. Despite acknowledging there was a dearth of literature on this question, it jumped out at me that this struck me, given the lack of literature, as potentially being seen as quite self-serving for the physical therapy profession. What was, the, what was the justification for such a high level of certainty around such a big question? Well, if you, if you look at some of the actual articles that were included, um, and you can go to, I think it's Appendix 3 that's online. It's a long, involved appendix, but you can find it. You'll see that supervision is difficult to define in any of those articles. For example, supervision in some of them meant that physical therapists were involved, but only involved in one or two visits to home. So we had this question of, well, are any of the articles really looking at supervision versus no supervision? And most of them are not. So defining supervision is a difficult concept. The other thing is some called supervision more intensive, <clears throat> excuse me, physical therapy, meaning more treatment or higher levels of treatment. Um, but the other group also had physical therapy. So I think we, again, are pointing out some limitations in the way our studies are done. And I think it's because no one wants to say that patients are not going to have physical therapy post-op. Right. I, I understand. I that, think, Alan, this, concern. Ahead, this is a great this is a great question because the future of what we do as physical therapists is changing and, and and I think we've seen it dramatic change with with the COVID pandemic. At least I have it at Intermountain Healthcare, uh, where we are we were limited in supervising patients because they were high risk. They couldn't come into the clinic. So so we've, we're changing what we we're doing, and we've got to be open to this. We've got to be open to the fact that we are we have to do our treatments differently, and we'll do them differently in the future. I'll get, let me just give you one example related to your question on supervision. So at Intermountain, we, we use a, a program where we can send out uh, high-quality video exercises to the patient, uh, to their phone or to their computer. So it's very common. In fact, almost on all patients, I'll, I'll see the patient, I'll, I'll do my assessment, and then I'll, I'll provide some exercises, send them out uh, video. And then the patient can interact with me um, through, through messaging. So through secure messaging, the patient can respond and say, Stephen, I've done these exercises that are a little difficult, and so I'll, I'll message back <clears throat> changes. I may even eliminate that exercise from the program and add new exercises without even supervising them in the clinic. So is that supervised therapy or not <laughs> supervised therapy? I mean, I'm messaging the patient. 
I'm, uh, I can do a video visit with them where I observe them, um, but they're also doing some exercises without my supervision every day. So I, I think that that you know I hope it's not self-serving that that we we need to accept the fact that we we have to reduce the cost of what we do with patients, and that may involve less direct in-clinic supervision. And hopefully our studies will show that it may be just as effective. And if it is, we need to accept that and, and realize that uh, uh, we don't need to be with the patient one-on-one with our hands on them all the time. You know, when I read this recommendation, it reminded me of an article published a few years ago uh, in the Journal of Health Affairs by the healthcare, high-quality healthcare collaborative out of Dartmouth, where they looked at uh, over 10,000 total knee replacement cases over five institutions, Intermountain being one of them. And one of the institutions rarely sent their total knee replacement patients to physical therapy. Others sent most. The variability was phenomenal. But I was unable to find any literature that really helped us understand which patients really need supervised physical therapist management and which ones will do fine regardless. And I think that's where the, the literature really is lacking and needs to to be um, improved. And I think you touched on that, Stephen, in, in your answer. It's a real dearth of um, useful literature when we ask questions about do all patients need something? My guess is we're going to find that subgroups of patients really need this kind of supervision and not everyone. But that's a personal opinion. Uh, I would agree with you, Alan. I think probably most of the pools of participants in studies are very heterogeneous, and no one has perhaps enough numbers to suss out which groups of people benefit from certain interventions and for which outcomes. That's the other issue. So, you know, which outcomes do we care about? Because there were multiple outcomes in many studies. Some, for example, even measure function in five different ways, and some show significant differences and some don't. So what are we, what are we to make of that? You know, Alan, you... You bring up such a good point. I mean, I think the re- one of the main reasons I was very interested and felt honored to be on this group was because of the high variability we see in the treatment we provide. And, and we've got to have standards and, and guidelines like this one to, to help reduce that unwarranted variability. Um, because when the variability goes down, as, as you know, Generally, the outcome improves and the cost goes down. Um, and and so I think that this provides a good opportunity for future research is to classify, as we've done with low back pain, subclassify patients, and then target the treatment based on those more homogenous groups. And and that some may involve higher intensity of of intervention, and some may require you know very little. To get to still get a, a good outcome, uh, I think this is a great 
opportunity for for future uh, research in this area. Well, I, I hope that research is forthcoming because I would agree it's really, really needed. Let's talk about one other area that really struck me. I was pleased to see that you looked at prognostic factors and research in that area. You were able to focus on one social determinant of outcome, social support. And not surprisingly, you had to conclude that there were no studies of sufficient quality related to the association of patient support with functional outcomes in these patients. But you weren't able to focus on other areas such as race and social economic status, living situation, neighborhood as prognostic factors. Was that because there was just no literature on those um, factors? Yes, our, our original PICO questions, we did have questions about socioeconomic status and race, for example, uh, but the literature in these areas was scant um, or didn't meet the criteria for inclusion. So, for example, one study uh, looked at education as a proxy for socioeconomic status. Um, another looked at urban versus rural dwellers, uh, but there was only one study looking at each of those factors, and neither one showed any significant uh, differences, and they were also low quality. So it's not for lack of asking the question. I think this also ties into what Diane described earlier, which was a limitation of, of this study, because the high-quality studies that were included uh, a lot of them are randomized controlled trials. And and I think you need observational studies to really look at some of these social determinants. And, and I think some of those were eliminated from our review because they weren't randomized controlled trials or, or weren't as strong, the evidence, and so they were not included. You know, that's really striking to me and suggests to me that the criteria may need to be rethought. It, it seems to me when we're talking about interventions, it's very legitimate to argue that randomized controlled trials are the kind of quality you would want to look for. When you're asking questions about social determinants as prognostic indicators, it's ludicrous to think that randomized controlled trials are the standard that you should be using. They, the design needs to meet the question, and a prognostic question like that, you can't do a trial. It, it just strikes me as using the wrong criterion for quality with that kind of question. What do you well, think about in, that? I think, in fact, there were observational studies included, and the randomized controlled trials, some of which did look at prognostic factors in terms of controlling variables are also included. So I think we have a mixture, it's just that there even aren't that many observational studies that specifically examine patients with total knee replacement. Yeah. You know, this is an area where if multiple institutions got together and pulled their data and started looking at these kinds of prognostic factors, we could learn a great deal. 
to shed more light in this important area of social determinants. No, I would we, we did I look would at diabetes. Yeah, I would say we, we did look at diabetes and BMI and comorbidity and depression. Um, they were fairly salient risk factors, and they could be a reflection of socioeconomic status and or race. Yeah, fair point. Last question, what's the plan for disseminating the, uh, the guidelines, and uh, what are your thoughts on whether or not it will actually influence practice going forward? That's the million-dollar question, Alan. I mean, there's there's certainly a lot more care process guidelines out there than there are studies that evaluate the effectiveness of care process guidelines. And I think the group and you know, we we hope that 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 individuals will will take this information. They'll incorporate it into the care that they provide, either in their solo practice, in their health system, uh, or or groups of practices. And then, more importantly, that they will monitor compliance of their therapists with the process and then measure the effectiveness. APTA has set up several things to, to help with the dissemination. Uh, they they you know we've already spoken on this topic at at uh, combined sections. Uh, I think they have other uh, social media campaigns planned, uh, webinars, and other things, including this podcast. Hopefully this will help with the dissemination. Um, but one thing I noticed that is really well done with this, Alan, is is you can, uh, you know, the, 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 the article, first of all, is is uh, available to everyone. Uh, it's uh, It's got open access. And then also APK has developed some pocket guides a pocket guide for the provider and a pocket guide with great education from the from the manuscript for the patient and those are available uh there's a you can get a free download of the first one from from APTA and then if you want to uh order those for your providers or your patients they're available uh right now uh on online to to uh make orders so i think that there's some great plans for dissemination Diane, what are your thoughts? I think the challenge is going to be are people going to incorporate this into their practice. And I think, you know, we got some hints about that from our review process. So I think people will take this and perhaps temper it. I think sometimes experience and um, maybe habit are predominant, especially when you're not so sure that you with what this uh, clinical practice guideline is telling you. Well, I want to thank both of you for taking the time to uh, discuss this clinical practice guideline with me today and, and also for taking the time to take on this task uh, three years. That's a tremendous amount of work, and uh, it's really important work. And so thank you for, for doing that, and thanks to all the other members of the committee who are listed at the end of your article. Thank you. Thanks. This is an APTA podcast.